0: The Cambie Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh and Quequitlam peoples. It's December 16th, 2021, and there are 303 days left until the Vancouver municipal elections. This is the Canby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. And I'm Ian Bushfield. We have a hell of a show for you today. We have our interview with Mayor Kennedy Stewart of the city of Vancouver. We had a very wide-ranging discussion with
1: him that we just wrapped up, and we are delighted to bring it to you today. It's fun. We talk about everything, and if you want to complain about it in the safety of our little community, you can become a patron and join our Slack channel. Yes, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash report. Yes, at patreon.com slash report, Sign up one, two, five, $100 a month. You could pay by year, I think. We're going to keep going through the elections next year, but we need your support to do it. It lets us put interviews like this on
0: Yes. So if you want to contribute, visit patreon.com slash Report. And with that third promo of our Patreon down, we bring you our interview with Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Mayor Stewart, thank you very much for joining us. Hey,
2: great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: We last talked to you back in 2018, just before the municipal election when you were running. It's been eventful in the last few years, <laughs> quite a bit. It will
2: like a thousand years ago.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you could have predicted the kind of challenges you'd face as mayor amid a pandemic and everything else that's happened, but let's kind of just start maybe with the good stuff. What have been the highlights since election night?
2: Ah, let's see. Well, uh, you know, I, I just on the, on the scope of the work, I, I've been working with um, uh, Michael Bloomberg and he has a group of 40 mayors. And so I do once a week check in with them, mostly U.S. mayors. And all of us agree that it was tough enough running cities without throwing a pandemic on top of it. So this has been uh really challenging, but I, I think the rewarding bit a is just seeing your city pulled together, like in the face of a really tough challenge, uh, you know, Vancouver has one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. Uh, we've mainly kept our restaurants and, uh, you know, mostly open for the most part, uh, you know, doing things like, you know, having 800, uh, Temporary patios, you know, city kicking in and everybody coming together to to push back against you know, something that's really tough. Has been that's maybe one of the most rewarding things is just seeing what a city can do when it's challenged. So I'm really proud of everybody there. Uh you know, and that so that that was on top of all the other stuff. Um I think going in as a as an independent, uh you know, knowing Christine Boyle, uh, you know we endorsed each other in the last election, so that w- was good. But of course, one city has a you have their own uh, policy agendas. So, so going in, kind of on my own, not having governed before, I think that we've managed to uh, actually do pretty well in terms. I probably got 95 percent of the things I I wanted to get done done, and through council, uh, despite the challenges that that come along with that. And so that, and I can talk about those in more detail, but those. The, the larger picture, I think I'm pretty, pretty pleased with how that's all gone when lots of people thought it couldn't. Uh, I, I think the largest thing, you know, I said to my staff team in, um, after the inauguration, uh, I'm going to go get a billion dollars for housing, uh, to help those who are most in need. And we've surpassed that, uh, both from federal, provincial and, and municipal contributions, uh, uh, which will lead to you know ten thousand units many of which are under construction now or finalized and definitely all the money secured for the rest of them so i think that's for me that's that that the the main you know that was my main thing that i i set for myself didn't really announce that Didn't say i was going after a billion dollars but uh and and that is a lot of credit to the partnerships that we've built with the federal and provincial governments and and two housing ministers that really get it a medicine and uh and dvdb really get housing and what it takes to deliver it. And so that, for me, that's the thing I'm, I think, most proud of in these, in these, uh, three plus years is, is securing that partnership and, and getting folks out of parks and off the streets into houses, which is, you know, having homes. And
0: that's been the biggest thing for me. On the converse side of that, what would you say your biggest regret is over the last couple of years? Biggest regret.
2: Um, I think that I am. You know, I, I, my background is academic, right? I, you know, one of my people think, well, what's your, what's your vice? You know, I like to write, <laughs> you know, that's kind of my vice. And so I haven't been a giant self promoter. And I think I probably should do more of that. Uh, doesn't come naturally to me. I mean, I was a bass player, right? So you don't, you, you're not the lead singer. And I think so. So part of it is getting, you know, telling people, getting, people to know me a bit more and and uh and then when we do something really good is to is to talk about it a lot because there's lots of people out there pointing out the things that you don't do so well. So uh I would think that that's that's it is is to be more proactive on 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 touting the successes because there's been quite a few. Well
1: let's get into some of the specifics and we want to spend a bit of time because one of our fascinations and one of the, you know, big concerns always has been in this city or has been for quite a while is housing. And you touched on that billion mm. dollars there a bit you know i was going back through your 2018 platform and looking through that and in that i recall the number 80,000 houses 85,000 85, 85, <laughs> okay yeah i could i didn't find that specific number in there i found 25,000 affordable non-profit rentals yeah. 35,000 condos townhomes and coach houses and i think there was another 25,000 so maybe when you add them together
2: they were 85 because they said it about 9,000 times through the election so i definitely remember 85,000
1: yeah. so i'm I'm curious. And that's over a decade. So obviously yeah. they wouldn't have all been built by now, but do you know offhand of that goal of 85,000, how, how close are we so far?
2: So if you talk about like, in it, in it's, you got to compare apples to apples, lots of places, you know, lots of cities will talk about, you know, potential, but in terms of approvals, uh, we're on track, uh, for a hundred thousand units over the 10 years. So, uh, beating that target too. And that is all forms of housing. So that is, uh, really with a record number of public hearings, uh, that both are many and long, uh, that is what we're on track for. So, uh, and that is all levels, uh, that is, um, that's condos as well as secured market rental, but the bulk of these approvals have been, uh, have been, uh, secured market rentals, which is also how I wanted to
0: pivot. I wanted to move to support renters more. What do you think about that public hearing process? Is there any way that it's, impeding the creation of uh, affordable housing in the city, or is there anything that can be done to reform it?
2: Yeah, I've thought a lot about that because I've chaired so many of these meetings. And, um, you know, one of the innovations, you know, COPA's brought a lot of tough stuff, but one of the innovations is being, allowing people to call in now, rather than waiting in, uh, in City Hall and, you know, taking your whole day and waiting to speak because you're not sure when you're going to get on the list. Uh, being able to call in now has just brought uh, a lot more people, but a lot of different people. And I think that that has added to the public hearings. But for me, I, uh, I think that part is really important and should be, uh, should be maintained. Um, so there are, you know, statutory requirements in terms of what has to come to public hearings and not, um, some of those things have changed. Like the the, the vote we did on, uh, Tuesday, will will um, mean that some of those types of buildings will come to public hearings. But uh, for me, the public hearing is the most visible part of the process, uh, where the public comes in and speaks and council debates and makes a decision. But most of the work on approving new buildings, larger buildings, is all done prior to. So you might spend three days on a public hearing, but you spend two years getting it there. So uh, my focus has been I know there's been a lot of debate around the province about eliminating the uh, public hearings. I I don't think we should, I think we should keep the public input, but try to shorten the length of time it takes these projects to get to council. And then post approval, shorten the amount of time it takes to get shovels in the ground. So those are two things, uh, those two sides of it, but more or less live the, uh, leave the public hearings, uh,
1: you know, the way they are, but keeping this innovation of allowing folks to phone in. One of those things was in your platform right that idea of shortening and dealing with permitting times and the time it takes to get something to council so that it can get signed off it seems from you know headlines and stories and some of the narratives going around like things haven't gotten much better and obviously the pandemic hurt staff's ability to work as quickly on some of the projects but how is that work going how is that you know commitment to cut the backlog, cut red tape, as it were, while still obviously protecting the kind of things we do need permits for, but how, I, how are we clearing the backlog?
2: Yeah. So I'll, uh, I'll, uh, talk about both sides of that equation, the pre public hearing and the post public hearing. So, um, I, exa- I had that exact question when I came in is what is the backlog? And what I found is that there wasn't really any one place where we could actually find a number. The, the staff said, we have four different databases and all that have to be combined manually. And I thought, oh, okay, this is part of the, part of the problem. Uh, so we started to, uh, staff started to pull that all together and we started to see the number of, and let's talk about large-scale projects, not, uh, you know, single detached homes per se. There were a lot of large projects that had been stuck in the pipeline for a long time. Uh, I think there were maybe 75 of them, some of them for up to 10 years. And I thought, well, that's, you know, this is our primary job. Why aren't we moving these things through? And the answer came back is that there are a number of projects that don't conform to the current policy, which sounds, uh, you know, like mumbo jumbo, but essentially there's no, you know, somebody wants to come forward with uh, something as innovative. They want it in a certain part of the city, but there's no policy that actually says whether or not it can proceed. So what happened in the past is these, these, uh, these projects just sat. Nobody really made a decision. It never came to council because it didn't conform. So I uh, asked council through a motion that I put forward to say, well, let's create a list of these non-conforming projects that contained thousands and thousands of housing units, um, and, and office space. Uh, so let's get them to council, even if staff don't approve of them, even if staff have problems with it, we don't need a hundred percent sign off on staff on all these projects, uh. So, uh, so that started now that has passed and we're starting to get, uh, these come forward, I have to say, you know, one was rejected, uh, council at least gave that builder an answer. One was rejected and, and a number have been approved. So, I mean, that was really part of clearing the backlog, you know, on projects that haven't made it yet to public hearing on the other side of the equation, and I think where you probably get the most complaints is on, um, on once things are, have been approved, it takes a long time to get development permits, it takes a long time to get building permits, it takes a long time to get uh, change of use permits. Uh, So I asked the city manager, um, to the new city manager, Paul Mokri, who replaces uh, Sato Johnson, uh, to put together a task force of his top uh, general managers, uh, and to start whittling away at this to find out, uh, you know, to start lessening the time. So for example you might have to apply for two permits in the past, you know, one for building, one for demolition. In the past, those would have been done in series. You'd have to get one and then the other. Now we're starting to put those in parallel. So you can apply for both at the same time. Lots of the smaller permits have been moved online with automatic approval. So in in a lot of cases, we've shaved, uh, you know, uh, weeks and weeks off of these uh, approvals. So I, I think now we've found... Uh, way to do it. We found the team to do it. And I think those times will continue to cut, to, uh, be reduced, uh, which is, I think a relief for everybody. The, the one thing I've been thinking about too, though, is that, you know, th- there's a lot of Vancouver, we often get compared to other municipalities, but there's a lot of Vancouver that's not in other municipalities. So there's a lot of very special things here. If you think of, I don't know, Falls Creek and the downtown core and, and, uh, you know, uh, other, other landmarks, not just for the city, but for the whole province and country, uh, seawalls, for example, those types of things, it's not the same as other municipalities because of those, uh, landmark features. And we have to make sure that we're, um, you know, keeping Vancouver, uh, like special, I think. So, so there is some balance between that, uh, those two things and, uh, And I do think things can be uh, hurried up and that's, uh, that's a focus of this task force with another report coming back in the spring.
0: You touched on this very briefly in in that there is a new city manager and there's also a new uh, city planner, Teresa O'Donnell that replaces Gil Kelly, who departed earlier. I, I was wondering how that has been changing the permitting process and the kind of culture in the planning department and whether you see any results coming out of that change.
2: Yeah, I, um, I really like Gil Kelly. I, I do think he was, um, you know, a, a, uh, a big thinker in a sense. Um, and I thought that was working at the beginning of Vancouver plan because that was his main thing we tasked him to do. Uh, but once COVID hit, it became quite apparent that we needed more nuts and bolts. Uh, we needed, uh, there was too much pressure in our system to do uh, too much, uh, you know, blue sky thinking. And we really had to get to... Um, really the things we just talked about, which is streamlining processes and, and getting stuff built. And I think, uh, Teresa O'Donnell is exactly the right person for that job, uh, coming from, uh, Dallas, which has a, a, uh, you know, a less onerous, uh, approval process is exactly the kind of mindset I wanted to be brought in here. Uh, I'm so glad that council agreed with me that she was the right person to hire. And now she's slowly changing her department, um, both in organization and personnel to really meet those objectives, a uh, delivering city plan that's uh, a little less dreamy and a little more uh, kind ocp of OCPE, you know, so we we have some more uh, structure, more like other municipalities is exactly the direction I want to go. And I'm really excited that our, her take on Vancouver plan will be coming forward uh, to council uh, next year. There'll be one more round of, uh, you know, there'll be the kind of maps and drawings and diagrams and that all goes out to the public to look at with the with decision by council, I think in July, June or July. And I'm really looking forward to see what she comes forward in, with, with in terms of her vision. Uh, at the same time, doing the nuts and bolts work that actually needed to be done a long time ago.
1: You mentioned the Vancouver plan. I didn't actually have it in my list of questions because I don't, I don't know. I almost ignore it at times in favor of the more day-to-day stories, but it is such right. a like... I think you used the high level blue sky thinking kind of thing about the city. And I think that's right. But one I think one of the concerns people had when it was being pitched during the election and in the first days is that it could result in kind of endless hearings and consultations without any conclusion. And it was this like nebulous, where are we going to go with this? We have urgent crises now. Yeah. Looking back, do you think the process is worthwhile and Like obviously, it's continuing and it's going to complete. But if if you could restart the Vancouver plan process, would you have done anything differently? I guess.
2: Uh, I agree. This wasn't. It was the first motion brought forward to council by uh, uh, Councillor Carr, seconded by Councillor Hardwick. Uh, And for me, it it wasn't uh, a priority. But you know, this is what council wanted to do, and uh, I thought, this is part of me working with council is to. Uh, it, it's not my way or the highway. It's, it's about building consensus. I I agreed to this. Uh, I did actually, I was staff at the city in 1993. I was in the planning department. I worked on the last one. That's what I was brought in to work on was city plan. So I kind of was familiar with what this process would look like. And in the end, what you get down to is a bunch of (laughs) maps. you know, the maps have different colors on them. And, and in the end, no matter who does Vancouver plan. Uh, who's in charge of it or what's going to come to the public and eventually to council are another map a bunch of maps that show how are we going to densify that's really it and so there'll be different choices uh because we have to add more housing to our city there's a real lack of supply here and uh and and the vancouver plan will uh will put some choices in terms of how do we move forward do we do we just uh, super densify along arterials? Do we have neighborhood uh, neighborhood nodes? Uh, do we, um, or or do we have different forms or some combination? So uh, that's what will be presented, and I think it'll become way clearer once we, um, once the maps and and schematics are available to the public. I, I think, you know, we had a vote on a Tuesday, which was on rental housing supply, uh, which was allowing six stories along arterials and then four stories in off arterial uh, kind of shopping uh, districts. I think that that vote one 10 to one was important signal to staff that they should be bold. And I think that's probably what we're going to see both in that Vancouver plan and the Broadway uh, plan that is also coming forward uh, next year.
0: Moving on to some other past promises, one of the things that you committed to supporting was the Skytrain to UBC, but so far the province and federal government are only committed to extending the Millennium Line to Arbutus. What is it actually going to take to get that line to UBC? Yeah, thanks for asking
2: the question. What? Um, so, uh, you know, there is a, a Mayor's Council that has a plan uh, that is, uh, you know, we originally, we had a plan that we inherited from the last uh, Mayor's Translate Council, so now we are putting together a 2050 a plan, 2050, uh, in that, uh, in that plan, there is an initial 10 year burst of things that we'll be doing, probably four to five large projects. Uh, the SkyTrain extension to UBC has to be in that. So that is the official mayor's sign off, uh, on it. The, to this point, uh, there's the, the previous plan signed off on a business case, like a, um, sorry, a pre-business case, which has been completed now. Um, the one thing I have managed to secure that the actual business case for UBCX is about a $40 million cost. That was where you would do all the route planning, all the detailed work, elevation stations, all that kind of detailed work Uh, that costs around $40 million. I have for the first time ever, the federal government has, um, agreed to fund, uh, 40 percent of that business case, which will take a lot of pressure off of, um, uh, of TransLink to do that funding itself, and the province is also in step there. So that business case, where in the past the cost would have totally been borne by TransLink, uh, is now uh, essentially free. So that is, uh, that is a big step. Now, Treasury Board at the provincial or federal level will not give approval for a project until a business case has been completed. So that is the next step. Uh, those I've been talking with mayors around the region really imploring them to uh have uvcx on the list of projects it is the biggest investment in terms of uh ridership it is the there's so much ridership there that it's uh, it's kind of a no-brainer when it comes to where's the next sky train um and a very good relationship with federal and provincial government so uh i think that that uh, uh once the mayors approve it we move on with the business case once the business case is completed the the feds and province so i still am uh, optimistic that this could be built in time for 2030.
1: Which will then get delayed because that's just the nature of construction, but that's not on you at this point. Uh, well, not if we have the Olympics, it won't. So <laughs> Let, let's talk about that then. The Olympic bid you're going in on, big bids are a controversial thing. Why go for the Olympics once again?
2: Yeah. So, um, the announcement we made, uh, I think last week it was where, uh, we, um, I, I stood with uh, the four host nations—Musqueam, Squamish, Sealtooth, and Lilwat—and uh, um, the uh, the resort municipality of Whistler uh, to agree as six partners to explore whether or not an Olympics is feasible. Um, it, it was a really important announcement for a couple of reasons. Uh, as a city of reconciliation, of course, we have to abide by UNDRIP as well and the new DRIPA Act that's been passed provincially. But reasons other than that is that. Um, all big events that come through the city now, uh, really, we need to ensure we move in lockstep in partnership with with uh, First Nations. So uh, how this, uh, expor- this exploration will proceed or started was that the four host nations as the title holders invited the two cities to participate. Which in the past, it was two cities inviting four nations. But that's a very important uh, symbolic and real step forward for reconciliation. Is, is acknowledging the title holders uh, first. Uh, so we did that and now, uh, now meeting with the Canadian Olympic and Paralympic committees, um, then uh, they will do a feasibility study uh, and then uh, this feasibility study will come back to our councils uh, for a final decision, which will be done in public as to uh, whether or not to actually proceed with the bid. Uh, and, uh, I have also talked with federal and provincial partners about this. And so that's the next step. So what was important to me was even if we don't get the Olympics, you know, whatever we end up doing, whether we pursue a bid or don't pursue a bid, uh, the reconciliation aspect of it was the most important for me because it, 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 the four plus two rather than two plus four is, is, is very important in terms of relationships because remember. Musqueam, Squamish, and the Slaveltoos uh, are the largest landholders in the city of Vancouver. And there's so many projects that are moving on here. It's important to have a, uh, a very uh, genuine and, and close relationship with those nations. And that's what I'm striving to build. So it
0: was their idea, not yours. Yeah, okay. I think it's Salem came up with it from uh, Squamish. Like Justin Trudeau in 2019, you promised that this election will be the last uh, Vancouver civil election where we elect our local representatives using the outdated at-large voting system. But it seems we're on track to still use this outdated at-large voting system. Your promise was to move to proportional representation if the provincial referendum went that way, or wards if it didn't. So why doesn't Vancouver have wards?
2: You know, I wrote my master's thesis uh, way back in the early 90s on this topic, and it really, it's something that this city has to do. But the politics of it were that the, you know, uh, I'd advocated for wards for a very long time. Uh, proportional representation is also important to me. But uh, the referendum failing here, you know, as I pledged in the election, that kind of canceled that one out. So moving to wards, uh, I did not have the support on council, the votes I needed to do it. Uh, technically, uh, city council can move to a ward system with a simple majority vote on council. However, the map still has to be approved by um, by the Provincial Cabinet, so uh, but after canvassing the uh, the councillors, uh, I only had one uh, vote with me, and that was uh, Gene Swanson. So that wasn't enough uh, to go forward, and I thought, well, if I, you know, and and the, and the, uh, the other sides were very entrenched. I, I didn't think there was anything that I could do to convince them to move forward, any kind of public debate, so I kind of said, well, I'll just have to wait until after the next election to, to move forward with that, uh, with a council that has, um, is more supportive.
0: So it is still a priority for you going into. Oh yeah. I I can
2: tell you why, uh, you know, a whole bunch of reasons. Um, one is that, uh, this used to be the primary mechanism of electing local governments in the U S and the Supreme court went in and struck down uh, hundreds of these systems because they they discriminate against particular uh, um, uh, ethnic groups, ethnicities, people of different ancestry. In the U.S. it was primarily uh, a black Latino uh, uh, citizens, but in Vancouver, if you look at our almost entirely all-white council, you can see that the the effect is the same. In a, in a very, very multicultural city, to have uh, councils that are over and over again, Uh, not representative is problematic and wards uh, would go some way to fix that. So I actually think if we had a court challenge here, um, the result would be similar to the U.S. Just, um, you know, it's something I've actually entertained in the past, but I thought, well, I'll promise it again in this election.
1: I'll try it one more time through council. If it doesn't work, uh, then I'll go to court. Well, that'll be a fun case (laughs) with my (laughs) own past of uh, just following that kind of interesting stuff. That'll be That'll be fun, but hopefully we don't have to get to court. You
2: know, it's tough though. Like if people don't see themselves reflected on council, it's, you don't tend to buy into your political systems. And, and that's really, it can't keep happening here. We can't, we can't have, you know, no uh, Asian representation on council when, when 30% of your populations of that ancestry. So it, it really is a justice issue. And, um, and it, it needs to be addressed because, you know, again, talking to my U.S. counterparts, those cities are splintered. Like they are tough places to live. They're tough places to govern. And we need to pull people together as much as possible. And being excluded from
1: your democratic system because of how systems work is just not on these days. So you mentioned canvassing the other councillors before deciding whether to go ahead with that or not. And I'm just kind of curious for the how much of the backroom politicking to put it in a negative spin, but it is an important part of our system is going on. Like how much are you talking to, you know, the other people who are elected on the VDLC slate, how many on the NPA slate who are now, you know, a bunch of independents and Melissa (laughs) DeCenova. Yeah.
2: Yes. So, uh, when I came in, uh, in 2018, I was like, well, how am I going to manage this? And I thought, well, I have to have a system. So what I said, uh, you know, how I made all my decisions, because I make recommendations for committees and Metro and all those types, Council approves them, but I do the initial recommendation. So what I decided and, and Council at that point agreed on was that the uh, the most veteran, uh, and you can actually see it on the seating in the Council Chambers. Uh, Adrian, uh, Councillor Carr, has the top uh, seat, the, the the most prominent seat, because she is the most experienced Councillor in Chamber. Uh, Melissa De Genova, who who got the third number highest number of votes in the election is actually in the second seat because she had the most experience and they both were the leaders of their caucuses. So that's how that decided. And not only does it work on council uh, seating priorities, it also works in appointment priorities. So I have a list of councillors and I just go down the list uh, and it goes first with those councillors that were uh, um, coming back as incumbents. And then it goes strictly by vote total after that. So uh, that's how those appointments went to metro committees, to uh, deputy uh, mayor appointments, like all that, you know, rosters, all that stuff. So what I also did is I uh, had uh, caucus meetings every two weeks. So because we're not allowed to meet in uh, groups of, um, you know, a whole health quorum, we have to have these meetings. So I would have a meeting with the MPA caucus, I have a meeting with the Green caucus and then I have a meeting with uh, cope and uh, and one city caucuses and I did that until uh the MPA decided to sue me and then I thought well I can't have these in the advice of my lawyer he's like you he probably shouldn't uh, be meeting uh outside the public realm with uh, these folks so that's when that stopped but I still have caucus meetings uh, with the caucuses uh with the uh, Greens, Cope, um, uh, Independent Councillor Bly, and because uh, she had left before the court case had started, and um, and with uh, uh, Councillor Swanson, so that you know, back from politics, I don't know. It, it is just a, a chance for us to go through things that are important to to the the caucuses. So you know, every time I get on the call with Jean Swanson, she's like. You've got to move forward with social housing and decriminalization and, and safe supply. And she's able to make a case and I can give her information and feedback. Uh, and that's what happens with all the caucuses at this, this point. Um, but as things started to break down on the MPA side, that became much harder to do. So at this point it's, I'm just meeting with, uh, with you might say the progressive, uh, caucus as well as,
1: um, uh, Councillor Bly who, uh, on a regular basis. So even though Colleen Hardwick, Sarah Kirby Young, and Lisa Dominato left the NPA, it's still kind of no channels of communication happening there?
2: Uh, well, I wouldn't say that. So I, I also have two chiefs of staff. Uh, we have uh, Neil Moncton is my what we call external chief of staff. So he does all the, uh, meetings between external stakeholders and all the provincial and federal government meetings. Uh, and then uh, Anita Zanker is my internal chief of staff, so she uh, does a lot of the work with the other counselors. So she is in to- uh, contact all the time with councils uh, all the way through votes to get the more information to, uh, you know, to coordinate the stuff that needs to be coordinated. So even if I'm not uh, having every two weeks meetings with uh, the counselors you mentioned, my chief of staff is always in contact. So, so it's not a complete freeze it is also i gotta say to be honest it it is hard to uh continually meet with people that attack you in the media like that or in social media like that's you know i don't you'll never see me do that but it 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 does kind of wear on you after three years (laughs) to come in and have a meeting and and the meetings i gotta say weren't that pleasant especially with counselor hardwick like she uh, behind closed doors she's uh you know exponentially uh demonstrates the um you know, the traits that she would show in public meetings. So uh, it's not very pleasant.
1: Probably enough said there <laughs> yeah. before you get yourself in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: okay. Can you point to a time when you feel like your leadership was essential in corralling council and actually moving a priority forward to completion or to uh, a point where uh, significant progress has been made?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, the overdose crisis is one. The first item that I put forward to council was a task force on overdoses because it, it was very clear uh, uh, that uh, that was a crisis in the city uh, and the worst possible kind. Uh, people suffering greatly before they died. So uh, was very, I was very—I put that forward to uh, council as my first motion in the in 2018. That uh, they unanimously supported that. Then uh, we went away and did a lot of work uh, led by Sandra Singh and her team. And we came back with uh, with a report uh, that had, I think, over 30 recommendations, which Council unanimously supported. Uh, one of the big ones that it was the to apply to the federal government to decriminalize uh, small amounts of drugs in, our, in the possession of small amounts of drugs, uh, which did come back to Council. Council unanimously endorsed that. And then that allowed me to go off and work uh, with, teams to uh to get that to the federal level so um you know vancouver is such a history of being kind of forward on drug policy it doesn't sound like a big thing but when you you know when i talk to the mayor from nashville and i say well yeah i'm just waiting to find out if we're going to decriminalize all drugs in our city they kind of fall out of their chairs so it now that has been stalled at the federal level um the i did uh i did really hope that um the health minister, Patty Cadu would have signed off on this. Uh, the election did happen. And then sh- that position has now been split off to, uh, uh, Dr. Carolyn Bennett, who's now the minister of mental health and addictions. And I had a very long two hour conversation with her where I, um, and, and why it's such a unique proposal that's important is because it's not only backed by the, the, uh, our head doctor, Dr. Patty Daly, uh, but also chief Adam Palmer, which, which, was intentional from the beginning, because what is decriminalization? It actually is changing police behavior and operations. So if you don't have buy-in from the police, it's almost going to be impossible to decriminalize and, and Adam Palmer has been on the record for a very long time calling for decriminalization and safe supply. So he has been an essential component in, in that application. So that is (laughs) a long story, but shows how, uh, you know. Bringing council together to vote for something that has not been approved anywhere else in the country, I think shows uh, how we've been able to work together to,
1: you know, uh, uh, tackle uh, uh, a really horrible problem in our city. Yeah, and it led the way to see the province move the same way and it's... You know, we've lauded it and it's just frustrating to see that in action on the federal level, but while we're on this question and I want to come back to the policing angle for sure, but while we're on this question of like working with council, kind of the other angle I wanted to ask about was this debate over the climate, the parking levy versus the levy you brought in through the budgeting process. And what really struck me about the way that all went down is how you sat silently through the permit debates at council and then. Kind of just voted against it at the end and i'm just curious about the strategy there and why you didn't speak up in council against the parking permit and instead put out your statement by press release after the vote
2: yeah, okay uh, great question first part of it is a technical answer uh when you're chairing council like i do you're allowed to ask questions but once a motion's moved and seconded you're not allowed to enter debate unless you seat the chair so that is why you'll see a lot of debate by councillors, not a lot by me, because uh, as you can see, uh, you know, chairing sometimes is like a rodeo. So I'm trying to keep that all the conversation flowing and getting us to decision. So that's often why I don't enter in debates, especially on more minor things. In in this case, uh, with the parking uh, decision, uh, I had talked, and we've had the caucus meetings with uh, prior to, and I had told the councillors. That I had great reservations about this method of raising money to, uh, to, to build infrastructure is that, uh, it, it is a regressive, uh, application of, of fiscal policy essentially is the folks that live that have to park on the street are usually lower income than those that have driveways and garages. And they're the ones who have to pay the permit, no matter what the cost, uh, where those who have garages and driveways don't have to, so. I thought, well, there's gotta be a better way to do this. And I may, I signaled that very early. Uh, I did actually the week before I, I think I issued a statement where I said I had reservations about this, uh, was listening to the public debate. It was completely split essentially, uh, as it usually is. And, uh, what, yeah, why I didn't say anything is I, I thought I'd kind of said it, uh, you know, I had the chairing position and I, and I said it enough, um, I didn't think any amendments would fix anything. I think the councillors were pretty locked in on on how they were going to vote regardless. And so it was just a vote and then a statement. So, But I had made a commitment. There was a lot of, you know, people weren't, the the progressives weren't that happy with me about this. So I had, um, had to come up with different ways to find the funding. And that's why I put the climate levy in, which is a progressive way of funding this, which is, you know, property tax, essentially is a uh, prog- you know, more progressive form of, uh, of, of funding city services uh, that the people with the highest value property pay the most and those with the lowest value property pay the least. Uh, and so that's why I thought that was the best mechanism. Uh, and also, uh, having talked to the prime minister uh, the week before, uh, right to his face, asking about the long list of things we'd be uh, building, uh, EV chargers, uh, retrofitting community centers to protect against heat domes, uh, you know, anti flood mitigation measures, all the things that the feds have said they'd, they want to have happen. They also have to come to the table and, and kick in money to do that. Uh, Just so folks know, a 1% property tax increase generates about $9 million. So this is hundreds of millions of dollars in investment, and we cannot do this alone. All cities agree. I mean, do you think, Abbotsford is going to be able to bail. You know, the the, the federal government just committed five billion dollars to re- to British Columbia to restore the damage caused by the by the flooding. Uh, so this has to be. Pro- these investments primarily have to be led by the senior levels of government. And so, if you want to reduce emissions, you want you know you want to be net zero by a certain date. You actually have to do that investment. You can't just pass legislation in the House of Commons, and that's the thing. Sitting in the House of Commons for seven years, it is a very theoretical place, uh, where the city is all nuts and bolts, and federal government doesn't put doesn't put any EV chargers in. That's all through cities. So, th- flow the money to us; we'll get them built. Don't land it on our, you know, don't don't crush us with the costs of this. And again, Abbotsford is a great example of where that just simply can't happen. So, so that I guess explains my rationale. You know, you may notice if you go through my social media streams, I, I, with the rare exception, and I, I never attack people personally, I, I think this is a tough job and you don't need to do that. And I will, but when I do disagree with people on particular policies, I will call it occasionally, but that's not my style. I don't, I don't ever think you have to be able to disagree with people and vehemently oppose on policies and the next day pick up and go work on the next one. You know, you can't, if you, if you make it personal That's where you have the massive breakdown in, in uh, democratic assemblies.
0: Do you think that there's a a kind of unfortunate trade-off in, in requiring the mayor to, when they're chairing council, not participate in debate? Like, do you think that there is a, a cost in terms of your ability to lead council when you are also required to chair council?
2: Yeah, I have thought about that. Um, and that's where I think having a team is important. I think that if it wasn't just me, I think, and that's why I'll be running with the team in the next election. Uh, already recruited a couple of really good council candidates that are going to run with me. Uh, that will allow kind of my policy preferences to come through the regular council that way, rather than me having to do all the, all the work. Cause when you're managing two panels and you're, you know, when you're trying to, you know, you, you can't really rate amendments. You can't really do all that kind of stuff. So that's why I need a team next part of the reason. So, uh, yeah, there, there may, you know, it's a funny thing because my main experience of this is, is again, the House of Commons. And really, you're like the Speaker of the House. That's kind of what you are. You have to be, no matter who puts forward a, a point of order, you have to think of it in a neutral way in order to respect the integrity of the chamber. Uh, so it is a, a quite a weird role when you have your own policy preferences. Uh, so I think that's why having, I know Mike Harcourt was we were talking about this and he had uh what he ran as an independent mayor uh in his second time through he had he uh ran and and won with um uh one person on his ticket that was able to do all that work for him and i think that was a good lesson that i wish i'd known before i'd run last time <laughs> so to brought somebody with me
1: <laughs> well it's Pull back from the theoreticals, how government works or doesn't, and talk about some more nuts and bolts. Let's come back to Vancouver policing, because it's been in the news constantly, whether people are more critical of the budgeting for it or more concerned about perceived crime waves or whatever have you. I'm curious, as we saw this past week, Edmonton City Council, for example, voted to cut policing's budget versus here in Vancouver, you ended up taking the side this year of supporting the VPD's request for a full increase, even above and beyond what staff was recommending. Right? Why take that position, even after last year, you took the more, you know, let's freeze the budget for a year kind of position?
2: Yeah, great question. So this, uh, I knew the least about this part of the job when I came in in 2018. And I remember chairing my first police board meeting and not really knowing what to expect. And then going back and reading the act to see what my responsibilities are. So the police act establishes, uh, a police department, uh, you know, uh, elsewhere, but in the city of Vancouver, that board is appointed by the province. So that's important to know. And the chair role, which is mine is to chair the meeting and I cannot vote except in the event of a tie or, uh, bring forward motions. Um, so. So that's a technical thing, but it's important to know because everybody looks at the mayor of Vancouver and say, oh, you're like, the police are a department like fire or engineering, but they're not, it is a it is an independent body that the city of Vancouver funds. So every year, uh, the police board, although I chair it, I have no vote on their budget proposal. They send a proposal to city council and we have to decide whether or not to fund it. So. Uh, that's the technical side of how this works. And it is, I, I was told that every mayor back to Gordon Campbell, it is the worst job because you actually have no authority, but you have all the responsibility. Um, so in terms of the police budget, uh, we got hammered with COVID like the city itself. I don't even like to think about that period. I don't know if other people do, but you know, having to shut down Granville street on St. Patrick's day, was my first, uh, kind of tangling with this, uh, this disease. And then uh, having declared the first state of emergency. And what that did is it not only was like a huge impact on the day-to-day lives of people, it actually was a massive hit on our revenue. Uh, most municipalities, small municipalities really only have property tax for for revenue, but we have parking. Nobody was coming downtown, so our parking revenues all dried up. Nobody was in our community centers. Uh, nobody was in our libraries. All So all those sources of revenue dried up. So we had a massive hit to our budget and we had to, uh, lay off 2000 people, uh, which a lot of people don't talk about, but this happens like in large municipalities right across the country during, uh, COVID. So, um, so every single department had to take a hit in, in that, in that budget, the 2019, uh, 2020 budget cycle. Uh, so we asked the police to do this the police board to do the same and they didn't. They, they put their full request forward, uh, and Simply, we couldn't afford to fulfill that without a massive, it was already a pretty big property tax increase at 7%. Like it would have been 10, 12% if we'd wanted that whole uh, request, which was uh, to move forward with a, a prior plan. Anyway, uh, so that's why the decision was to hold the, uh, hold the budget constant uh, for the police. It, like a lot of people tried to characterize it as defunding or whatever. It wasn't that at all. It was a simple. Uh, it was a simple a budgetary necessity, uh, and I mean, I think you know we all see what police do. Like that is a tough job, you know. And in, in, in the middle of COVID, when you don't have enough PPE and nobody's vaccinated, and you're you know you're you're trying to, to do the job you best you can. You're sitting in cars of people that you don't know in the back, you know. Like it's it's so stressful. So I really feel bad the stress that caused, uh, folks. But it was a budgetary. Uh, decision and, um, you know, it it was a very emotional time and that's how it played out, but this budget cycle, uh, the board actually made a pretty reasonable request. There's, there's been quite a changeover in the board. They took a tough look at their numbers. They did have a number of meetings with council, which was very productive. Uh, so, um, when they got the request and it was slightly higher than what staff recommended, uh, council agreed with it. Uh, well, actually not quite true because. Lots of people agreed with the increase, but when it came to the vote on actually paying for it, the main proponents of the policing, uh, you know, Nova, Kirby Young, Dominato, Hardwick, and Bly, all voted against basically what was a public safety budget. And that is, you know, the oldest trick in the book when it comes to budgets is you put everything in that you want in and in the, at the last minute you leave it to everybody else to make the decision of whether or not to pay for it. So that was quite disappointing in this budget cycle. Um, but in the end, um, you know, we approved it and, and the on this budget, the day before we went, uh, to the vote, uh, we had an arbitration settlement come in, uh, which, uh, we had counted on police getting a two and a half percent increase every year in their, in their salaries, uh, for three years. It actually came in at, uh, three which was a, a big hit for us. And so, but we have to honor our collective agreements. And so that's what we did. And that's what the number is, why the number is what it is. So, um, uh, you know, police are really expensive. We spend a million dollars a day on policing here in the city. Uh, that's, it's a big chunk. It's, it's over 20% of our budget. And when you throw fire in there, you're almost at 30% of your budget. That, that has to be scrutinized. Uh, you know, every year I know the police board Does it and part of my resolution at council for this was to, uh, invite the board to, um, to use our new auditor general, to take a look at where we might uh, find some cost savings. So, uh,
0: that is, uh, this, uh, you know, that's the budget story around policing. So this debate over funding uh, of police is amidst a background on discussions about systemic racism in policing and. I was wondering what you can tell us about what has been done to tackle the problem of systemic racism in policing in Vancouver.
2: Yeah, that, that, uh, that's been a a tough one to tackle too. Um, you know, part of it stemmed from, I, I went through, uh, some anti-racism training myself, uh, which my staff recommended that I do, and it was probably the most illuminating thing I'd done since my PhD. It was, I really learned a ton and then started to look at the institutions in which we work and thought, well, all these institutions are systemically racist. I mean, if you look at hiring, if you look at application of policy, if you look at funding, they're all, you know, they're all colonial, uh, legacies here, um, that need to be addressed. So was simply, uh, when it. It all kind of started blowing up around George Floyd, you know, when that started happening in the U S there were lots of marches here and I, I made a statement. Um, and we had, um, Maxwell Johnson and his, uh, his, uh, granddaughter, uh, handcuffed outside the BMO, which was a terrible, you know, she's 12. That was a terrible thing. And, you know, so I simply said that I called on the provincial government to review the police act, to look at how. How what we're how we regulate police how we how we set up the institutions uh, are systemically racist and how we can address that uh, there was a disagreement about about whether or not that institution is systemically racist and uh, the board did not back my call as a mayor initially uh, but they since have they have issued their own statement acknowledging systemic racism within. Uh, within the BPD and with all our institutions of governance and have taken some really good steps in terms of training and, uh, their own training and training within the police to address this, uh, we've still got a long way to go, but admitting it is the, is the really the first step and, um, uh, and making sure that you're not only doing things like, uh, hiring diversity, which actually the BPD is pretty good at, uh, the leading, I would, the most diverse police force already in, in Canada, uh, it is. How law is applied, so I think like decriminalization will go a long way to, for example, detasking police from dealing with that part of uh, what's going on in, in in Vancouver, and and that it's really about well retasking. You know, I hear uh, every police board meeting. Probably my the part I hate the most is when we go in camera and the and the police chief gives us his confidential report about what's actually going on in the city, and some of it is uh, gruesome. And it's also worrying. So um, I want police focused on those things: uh, organized crime, uh, gang violence, uh, you know, homicide, uh, uh, anything to do with physical assaults, which are just wreck your life. So that's where police should be focused. We shouldn't have police kind of uh, what's been dumped on them is is mental health and addiction, uh, and that's not fair either. So that's why the chief and I are, I think, such in lockstep. On decriminalization, on safe supply, and on uh, getting more services to help those uh, who have uh, mental illness. Uh, so, so actually, you know, we agree and work together on almost everything. And I
1: think now that the the budget stuff is settled, we're we're you know, the future looks good. I want to finish with a couple of questions on looking ahead to the next election, but before I get to that, and while we're still on policing, I almost just want to yeah. take the chance to ask for a quick comment on the situation in Surrey, where the mayor is facing criminal charges there. I know you've had a like almost surprisingly good relationship to many with mayor Doug McCallum. I think your history, no one would have expected that, but then yeah. you both have seen eye to eye on a number of regional issues if you want. <laughs> yeah i won't, what you I won't
2: comment on you, you know currently uh his current situation with the uh the the um you know whatever the the, the charges there uh, i will say though that uh i was as surprised as anybody else about the relationship with with doug mccallum in fact like i remember walking off the stage at the waldorf and at, on election night and, and global stuck a camera in my face saying are you going to support the switch from light rapid, uh, light rail to SkyTrain. Uh, and I thought about it for two seconds. I said unequivocally, yes, because actually that's what needed to happen anyway. And that started off a very good relationship with Doug and I, we had a tough free few votes at TransLink where we had to do that using weighted votes and, you know, uh, did have to convince the feds and promise to fund that project, but now it's getting built and, and then on police, that was, uh, McCallum's other promise. Um, we talked about it and in fact, the, uh, the VPD did help, uh, write reports and things to, uh, to transition that, which I also think was a good move. Uh, why I think it's a good move is because we need further cooperation regionally here. Like I, I always kind of think of the Dukes of Hazard. I don't remember if you, you know, if you remember that show, but. You know, it was these, uh, the Duke boys were in the south, and they would commit a crime, and they would drive across the border to the next municipality or county, and then the police couldn't catch them. And and they have such a fragmented region with 21 municipalities, you know, some with independent services, some with not. Really, we have to move towards regional integration. Uh, That's why I was so keen that the BPD uh, help uh, the transition in Surrey so we can have uh, closer integration. Uh, between, you know, whether it's on homicide investigations, uh, or equipment purchases or cyber crime. Uh, so for me, I was keen to help there and Doug's been great. Uh, he's also on the big city mayor's uh, caucus nationally, so we can team up to fight for uh, British Columbia's, um, inputs. But, uh, I, just like, I won't, uh, comment on my own and, uh, you know, in case with the MPA, I don't want to comment on, on, on that. I hope you
0: understand. We had to ask (laughs) though. Yeah, that's cool. So looking at the next election, we already have multiple people saying they're running for mayor against you. Notably, Ken Sim is renewing his challenge with his new party, John Cooper with the NPA and Mark Merrison with another new party. Meanwhile, you've just received the endorsement of the VDLC once again. How are you feeling about your chances in the election, particularly if a prominent progressive challenger emerges? Yeah, don't forget Colleen Hardwick. It's the worst kept
2: secret in uh, you know local politics. Uh, you know she's you know on the verge of announcing a mayoralty bid herself with Team. So um, you know, first of all, I love elections. But, you know, I've studied them my whole life. I've been in one, two, three, four. This would be my fifth election. Uh, you know, uh, I've never had an easy one, so I'm kind of programmed to run from behind, and that that's what I'm doing now. I, I am excited to kind of set a new. Uh, set of priorities in front of the public for them to consider and enter into those debates uh, and, and to continue on, I think, with a lot of what I've been able to do and, and try to keep that going. Um, for me, though, it'll be a different election. I'll be running, uh, you know, with a, with a team um, of, of folks uh, that will be running under a unified brand. So, I haven't quite picked that yet. It's kind of like picking a band name. Uh, You know, it takes a little while just to get it right. So, that, but that'll be announced in the, in the, in the new year. So, uh, the total number of candidates that I'll be supporting, uh, yet not quite determined yet because we, I am in conversations with other uh, progressive parties as to how we might best work together. But um, I'm feeling, I feel like, you know, I've done, Pretty well under pretty tough circumstances, and I think the city's in in decent shape. There's a lot of work to do here, but uh, I really feel like I made some good moves on housing and uh, and with my making home proposal in January. If I can get that passed, uh, that'll make a big difference to middle income uh, the opportunities for folks to buy for buy housing. So, um, you know, I uh, look forward to the debates and the uh, and the door knocking and the and the. Uh, you know, the, all the scrutiny because it's, uh, I'm a huge believer in, you know, uh,
1: in democracy and it's the best part of what we do here. Do you think making home is going to pass? It's kind of a rehash of the making room proposal that you brought before that ultimately got referred down the pipeline of we're outside council. We don't know where it goes, but it seems to die.
2: Well, I, you know, the initial vote was a bit awkward. Uh, because it came as an amendment to it, you know and, and I knew it would be that, but I knew I needed to get the conversation going. so I'm not surprised the first one didn't didn't pass. What it did do though is bring out a lot of the objections that the other councilors had. so um so what I did is rewrote the proposal essentially to accommodate more of those uh, needs. So for example, Councillor Fry will always talk about Dcl waivers uh, about how that we need to invest in local infrastructure. I completely agree with him. so this, this proposal has a mechanism for land value capture, uh, so that the land lift doesn't go to the entirely go to the owner. A bunch of it comes back to the city, so we can build uh, everything from community centers to climate uh, climate change mitigation, all that kind of stuff. So I, I do think I've tried to build that in uh, to make it more flexible, and and I I feel like there may be more votes coming my way. But that's the thing with this council; you just never know. Uh, so, um, it also is a little different in the sense that, um, you could still build two, you know, you could still have two kind of lower cost units, uh, in the package of six, but you also could just build them all strata and then the city would take, uh, more money to build, uh, you know, take a, a bit of the land value, uh, lift to, uh, build other things. So it's a, a more flexible. And I guess the key is that what makes it different from say something that was proposed by the last council is that this is not a kind of a blanket rezoning. This is a, a, a new option for homeowners. So they can opt in or not opt in that that's their choice, which I think is also appealing in that, you know, there's a lot of folks who just like living where they are and they don't like all the pressure of, of things and they can leave their properties just the way they are and not worry about it. But others who want to bring more density to the city to have more families live here can can participate. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful it'll pass. Uh, but, uh, we'll have to see, uh, you know, and that it's been backed by the Canadian real estate, uh, foundation as well as the Vancouver district labor council, you know, two groups that wouldn't necessarily have Christmas parties together. Um, they, that they both back it shows that it has appeal, broad appeal on, on, uh, both the left and the right.
1: Speaking of the left, one of the things you mentioned in the last interview we did with you, and this will be my last question okay. is that to win, you needed the votes of new Democrats in the city. Yep and you would just go for that. Now, is that your strategy again? The 2020 election suggested there's a lot more BC New Democrats in the city than there were before, but are you still kind of focused on that partisan lens?
2: Yeah, I learned a lot through the election was that, um, you know, the elections I'd fought in the past federally were deeply partisan, like you are orange or red or green or blue, but that wasn't the case in this election like folks that would have been long time MPA voters came over and supported me. And those are some new Democrats didn't. So, I mean, uh, what I learned is that you, you really, you know, they, they say all generals fight the last war. Well, you have to really recognize what's going on in the current situation. And, and most of it is, and also that municipal party labels, people aren't as attached to those as they are kind of the, the, the provincial and federal parties. So what I have to do is put a a package of proposals that both to talk about my record and what I've done, but also to put a package of proposals that appeals across the wide spectrum of, of people and worry a little less about how they vote in other elections. So I think that's one lesson I took away. Um, and I do think that that issue will be housing. I truly think that the main thing there, you know, people will talk about, um, you know overdoses and property tax and crime and transit but really when it comes down to it the uh i i I don't want to be you know courtney burnett do you know that uh singer i went to her concert last night she's about 35 and she had you know about a 30 year old audience there uh she has a song about um having to move out to the suburbs uh, exurbs and and how much it costs and everything and Although the audience didn't sing along to any other song, that one, they knew all the words to, which was about trying to find a house. And that is the issue of this, uh, generation and generations to come, and it's gonna be housing. So I need some very strong proposals that, that come forward that are bold. And I think that's what this election will be on. It'll simply, simply be a NIMBY or YIMBY. That will be a big split and it won't be along party lines. It'll be along policy lines. So that's what I'll be working on.
0: Get more stuff built here so people can live in a more affordable way. So after playing a somewhat more centrist role on council than perhaps I think some people expected, do you think that the progressive coalition of voters that elected you last time will still vote for you?
2: Yeah, I think decriminalizing all drugs in the city is kind of a lefty thing to do.
0: <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Know, Fair and, enough. <laughs> you
2: know, I don't <laughs> see, I don't see way young pitching that one. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so I think, uh, I think that uh, you know, and also the the extreme focus, you know, bringing uh, about a billion dollars in to, to uh, help those that are living rough, uh, that are, I, I think that is a big part of it. You know, tackling poverty. But I do understand that to build a big tent, you also have to build condos. You also have to build, you know, higher level market rental places. And that is a maturing on my behalf. I think that uh, you understand what the needs are in the city and you have to accommodate as many as you can. So I know, um, some progressives are, uh, you know, they'd, they'd like me to be more, more radical, I think that, but, but I, but I feel like I have to pick my spots and, and if there's anything, it's, it's, you know, every Monday morning, I get an email that says how many people died of drug overdoses, 10, 10 and one week that was my family member, you know, and then I get the same report says, oh, firefighters revived 200 people. And that's just firefighters. So if you like that, to me, that is the absolute worst thing that's going on in this city, like housing struggles. I get it They're, there and I'm working on that as much as I can. But really this overdose thing is just like, you can't, people don't even want to talk about it. It's so traumatic. So, so that really, uh, so that really is, if I can do one thing is it, if I can get the crim this, you know, in 2022, like, <laughs> I think that will help. It won't solve it, but maybe my, the, in, the inbox does not say, you know, the email doesn't say 10 people died. Maybe it says eight people. And then maybe if we get safe supply, it comes down to two people. And then, you know, we get more treatment beds and at zero. And to get that, to not have that email every Monday, whatever, Mayor, like that would be, that's the thing we all have to really work on because it's,
1: it's just horrendous. Well, I'm just trying to think of a more positive note to end the <laughs> interview and discussion on. You've been more than generous with your time. Yeah. I don't know. Can, can we make the barge a permanent thing? <laughs> <laughs> and the park board, finally,
2: they got the temporary sign. So that I, I actually think, if I can say on the positive side, um, this will be the hottest city in the world to live in over the next 20 years. There are so many, like, again working with michael bloomberg working with european and, and american mayors they're all looking at vancouver and say we want to be that oh you don't we mean heat be... domes i see <laughs> <laughs> well but we're tackling it too they they like the environmental investments that this population the residents have bought into uh, the progressive policies the lack of clash between uh you know various social groups right i mean like Other cities are a real mess and, and Vancouver's got it going. And then things you think, well, Olympics have them or not. We have probably have the option, get the world cup here in 2026. Like I'm working very hard to do that. I love world cup, my favorite sporting event, uh, you know, and, and then get more stuff for people to revive the music scene. Like there's so much stuff going on here. We already have great restaurants and things, but it's just what I like about cities is when you turn the corner and you see something new. And that's what cities are all about. And I think after COVID, that's where we're going to get to. You're going to see so much new stuff coming here that uh, it is, it's going to just take us to another level in terms of being uh, just an exciting place to live. And, um, you know, I can't, I can't wait this COVID stuff just, okay. We've had uncle, we've had enough. So, so uh, yeah, so that's it. I I see a very bright future here and, and a very exciting place to live kind of like, Paris in the 1920s like I just think it's going to be
0: you know amazing but we just have to get through this pandemic. Well Mayor Seward thank you so much for joining us it's been a pleasure talking to you.
2: Yeah thank you and thanks you guys for doing this like I mean this is a real service to the public here you you go into depth you you talk to folks you explain city issues you let other people have their point of view so really thank you for your work.
1: It's a ton of fun for us we get to talk to interesting people and we have a great community so it's Labor of love. Yes. But thank awesome. you so much. Thank you. Have a great you, holidays. Okay. See you later.